Health from WiseCast, the podcast for women in STEM and education. I am Dr. Richa Chandra. And I am Dr. Amber Miller. In this episode, bringing healthy back. Yeah. <laughs> Them other boys don't know how to act. I mean, wait, sorry, I got a little off track there. You will hear our conversation <laughs> with Dr. Sarai Stancic, who is an MD and internal medicine and infectious disease expert. She has a groundbreaking survival story from an initial multiple sclerosis diagnosis, and she is the author of What's Missing from Medicine. She produced a documentary, Code Blue, and has some additional exciting things in the works that she is going to allude to in our conversations. But before that, all of that good stuff, Richa, how did you get dressed for success today? So today, based on everything I know about Dr. Sarai Stancic's uh, What's Missing in Medicine and her advocating for a plant-based diet, I grabbed this very form-fitting green t-shirt that I haven't worn, I think, in like 15 years. So I'm being very brave on multiple fronts there because it's form-fitting, so it's probably going to make me eat healthier all day. Um, And it's green to symbolize the fact that I'm actually a vegetarian, so I do um, follow this plant-based diet. Not perfectly because I'm not vegan, um, and we we talk about that um, in this episode as well, but I love cheese, um, and I'm very curious about the science relating plant-based diets to autoimmune conditions and chronic disease, et cetera, and how um, she ties that all together with what's actually missing in medicine. So that's kind of the theme that I went with. Let's wear green to be healthy, health conscious today. So Amber, how are you dressed for success? Yeah, so um, I had a bit of a rough week this week just with uh, some different things going on. And so I donned on this bracelet that my sister actually gave me, which you'll, as you listen to our episodes, learn my sister gives me a lot of really awesome things, but it's kind of this gold and then it feeds into purple on the outside. And it looks just like a, a fatter bangle kind of bracelet, but inside it is inscribed with keep effing going. Um, and so it's kind of like my, you know, self model it's right next to my getting wiser um, bracelet that Richa gave me, but it just kind of inspires you. Like even when it's hard, you just got to keep going and keep pushing through. And I think that kind of really resonated with um, the story that we hear right um, through her journey. So we are so excited to be here with Dr. Stancic today to talk about your health journey, recovering from your initial diagnosis and challenges with multiple sclerosis that really kind of altered, right, your personal and professional paths and perhaps transitioned you from infectious disease to lifestyle medicine. We feel really honored to talk to you today and for our listeners to hear your very poignant story. Thank you so much. It is wonderful to be with both of you this morning. Uh, and so let me share my story. It, it it actually took place more than 25 years ago when this all started. Amber, um, I was a third-year medical resident in the midst of a very busy call. And um, I took a nap. And when I awakened, uh, I couldn't feel my legs. So it was that sudden. Um, next thing I knew, I was in the ER undergoing an MRI of my brain and spinal cord. And it was then that the diagnosis was confirmed of multiple sclerosis. And so that is really the turning point of my life. Everything changed thereafter. I was now uh, a chronic illness patient admitted to the hospital. And, and that um, very difficult period that followed um, for about eight years, uh, multiple medications. I think at one point I was on about a dozen medicines to manage not only my disease, but the side effects of the drugs that I was taking to manage that disease. And I found myself by 2003, my early 30s, uh, dependent on a cane, 
um, and really losing hope because disease seemingly continued to progress despite being compliant with the medications as prescribed. Um, and then uh, by chance, I came across an article that discussed the connection between diet and disease. And I was struck by this because in all of my years of training, um, I had never, uh, none of my educators, mentors, professors had ever really connected these dots. And so when I read uh, this publication, it really stirred something within me. It offered me hope uh, and it catalyzed this interest to search the literature to really understand the connections between dietary choices and how it might affect disease outcomes. And that brought me to a publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, believe it or not, published in 1952 by a physician named Roy Swank, who talked about multiple sclerosis and the incidence of MS in Norway, which is one of the highest rates of MS in, in the world. And he noted that the highest rates were occurring in the inner farming communities where they were consuming a great amount of saturated fat. And back in 1952, he hypothesized that saturated fat consumption was somehow playing a role in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. And uh, he went on to actually treat patients, believe it or not, in the 1950s uh, with a low-fat plant-based diet. And he followed a group of 140 patients over 34 years and ultimately concluded that his patients, um, after 34 years of living with MS, 95% remained disability-free. And that was incredibly exciting for me when I read those words in 2003, and, and it certainly... Um, stimulated uh, this interest in creating change in my own life. I can't even imagine how you must have felt like that young going through something so life altering and, you know, all of a sudden, um, you know, having, you know, such a successful path and then you're just like knocked off course like that. I, you know, um, it just makes me very emotional every time I've heard you talk about this and in, in different um, places, you know, just can't even imagine. Right. And, and that's how life is. Sometimes, you know, people get knocked off course so suddenly um, and, you know, the plant-based diet thing, I mean, that that's um, so interesting personally to me because I'm a, I've been a lifelong vegetarian. Um, I had Hashimoto's thyroiditis at, and for our listeners who don't know, that's um, an autoimmune thyroid disease. And so all of this has been like so interesting to me from a scientific perspective, you know, to hear you talking about having a plant-based diet and then, but, you know, I'm a vegetarian, so not vegan. And I definitely have dairy in my diet. Um, with this. Yeah, so It might be uh, something to consider to address your dairy consumption because um, it is a great source of saturated fat. In the, in the past um, recent years, there was an interesting publication in 2017 um, by researchers at Mount Sinai. And we're really starting to understand how it is that an autoimmune disease improves with a primarily plant-based diet or a fiber-rich diet. And here's the connection because uh, Swank was criticized and so many have over years thought like, how in the world does what you put on your plate affect an autoimmune disease, a neurological autoimmune disease that is attacking the brain and spinal cord? And so here, follow me on this. So essentially what happens is when we eat a fiber-rich diet, right? We shift the makeup of the microbiome, right? So the microbiome is this organization of bacteria, virus, and you know, uh, org organisms that live in our gut. Well, and we've been studying this for quite some time and we're learning a lot about these connections. And so we have these good bugs in our gut and we have these bad bugs in our gut. And guess what the good bugs like to feed on? Fiber, right? 
So when we consume a diet rich in fiber, we're, we're, we're creating uh, an environment where we're going to allow these good bacteria to, to do very well, right? And so these bacteria in turn produce these chemicals, uh, these uh, short chain fatty acids uh, like butyrate that then communicate with the immune system. Uh, and so now we see this connection, right? How you eat affects the bugs in your gut and the bugs in your gut communicate with your immune system. So essentially these uh, chemicals that are being produced by these good bugs are telling the immune system, stop attacking myelin, which is that fatty sheath that protects the brain and spinal cord or rheumatoid arthritis, stop attacking the lining of the joint um, or in Hashimoto's disease, the thyroid, right? So it's really very, very interesting and we're learning so much more, but we're starting to see these connections as to how our dietary choices are affecting uh, something as complex as an autoimmune disease. Yes, I was like, it's got to be micro, you know, I, the virologist in me loves the, yes. micro, you know, like loves the, the microbiome, right? And so I'm sort of like, it, there's so many things that we are now learning, right? That the the microbiome, as we explore it more and, and that it affects, and even some of it is, you know, as simple as like, we see that, that you know, bug in our gut and our, our body doesn't recognize it or it doesn't see it as like a, a pathogen, right? Or it does see it as a pathogen and those things cross, right? They're similar to to maybe some of these substances that the immune system is then attacking, right? The kind of mimicry, mimicry. that our bacteria have and, and all of those things. But yeah, I love I love that you brought up the microbiome and kind of touched on that because I mean, and, and it's, you know, one of those things where we, I think the public buys into it for things like, Crohn's and, you know, the intestinal, you know, IBS and the things where it's affecting the inflammation in the intestine. But I think it's fun for, for everyone to hear, right. It's not just limited, right. To, to, you know, inflammation of the gut, right. It's, it's, it's everywhere that the microbiome is, is affecting, right. It's absolutely everywhere. And I think, I, I think at the end of the day, we're probably going to learn that the, the microbiome is affecting all of yep. the, the whole spectrum of chronic illness. So diabetes, yeah. heart disease, Alzheimer's disease. I mean, you know, we're living um, in the midst of this very difficult time in, 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 in the history of, of not just the country, but the globe. We're living in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic. And if you think about it, um, how has the, the pandemic affected, or rather the chronic disease epidemic aff affected the pandemic? We know that individuals that are living with a chronic disease, are if they get infected, with SARS-CoV-2, they're six times more likely to be hospitalized and 12 times more likely to die. But I want people to understand this connection that we are a country that is poorly equipped to battle this acute infectious contagion because we're living with this background of chronic disease. Chronic disease that we know is largely preventable. Um, I think it's striking that the scientific literature tells us that we can, we have the knowledge and understanding today to prevent 80% of chronic disease. And this is an all important message that needs to be conveyed uh, to patients across the country uh, and beyond because it's so powerful and, and, and it's so simple, right? It's, it's about engaging and just adding more plants on our plate, assuring that we're getting in some physical activity every day, addressing streams of stress. These are all the aspects of lifestyle medicine uh, that we discuss, assuring that we're sleeping effectively. So many of us may be turning to alcohol to, um, to deal with the stress of this past year. Uh, and, and that's something that we need to become more mindful of. And and also the pandemic has, has led us to be very isolated, right? I mean, that's been part of six feet of, of distance and 
uh, wearing a mask and all of those things are incredibly important, but it's led to a lot of um, depression and isolation. Um, I, I'm very hopeful that uh, now with the the vaccine being delivered uh, across the country that we're starting to see that uh, we're turning the tide on, on this difficult period. And hopefully the silver lining is that we, we come to re- recognize that it's so important that we address our daily habits and that we can do so much uh, to prevent these chronic diseases that have regrettably become so prevalent. I love that, you know, you have the both the professional authority and the personal authority from your own experience to speak about this and, um, you know, from the scientific angle and the personal angle. So in your progression of multiple sclerosis, it, you know, from what I understand, it got worse before it got better. So where, where are you in the, in the progress of, um, you know, are you in, I don't know if it's like remission or is it just kind of under control? Like, how does that, that work for you? Yeah. So I, I think um, remission would be appropriate or under control. I'm certainly not cured. I mean, I live with multiple sclerosis, but the good news is that uh, it's been 25 years since I was diagnosed. I take no medication and I'm, I'm fully active. No, I have no uh, evidence of disability, which is uh, an incredible blessing. In fact, this year on October 11, 2020, uh, I celebrated 25 years since the day I was diagnosed and, uh, and, and hospitalized. And on that day, I walked 25 miles uh, with family and friends to celebrate. And uh, it's funny that, that I would say celebrate uh, the day of my diagnosis, but uh, to me, it was a celebration. It's funny that, and I say this to my patients all the time, and they're always struck by it, that um, multiple sclerosis has been a gift uh, for me. Uh, yes, it led to um, pain and, and suffering, and some, but it, it's, it's resulted in, in an incredible evolution for me. I think that um, sometimes uh, the most difficult periods in our lives uh, are purposeful, and they lead us to where we need to go. And hopefully, uh, my experience will will lead to helping others, and I mean that that's that's the goal right here is, is to serve others, and I mean that's why I pursued uh, medicine, the field of medicine, to to serve and heal. And so, if if uh, my book and my film and and having this lovely conversation with the two of you today will serve that purpose, then it's all good. So we do want to have a, a better understanding of um, the field of lifestyle medicine and what salutogenesis means versus pathogenesis. Um, would you share about your what you're writing in your book and, and your documentary that you produced? Yeah. So salute, well, let me start with lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle medicine is a relatively new discipline whose focus is, it is to educate and empower patients on the importance of optimal nutrition, a primarily plant-based diet, physical activity, stress management, effective sleep hygiene, addressing addressing substance abuse issues like smoking and maybe drinking too much, and then the importance of social interconnectedness. Um, and, and why is all of that so important? It's important because the scientific literature tells us time and time again that when we optimize these aspects of lifestyle, we can indeed prevent 80% of chronic disease, which is remarkable, and yet not a message that I received in medical school, uh, which is why I've, I, we made the film, because we want to bring awareness to this. Um, medical school, the experience uh, is based, or the medical education model is built on, built on this idea of pathogenesis. So what we learn uh, is the study of illness and disease, which is, of course, very, very important. We learn uh, how to take a really good thorough history and physical. We're collecting clues, um, all in an effort to make the diagnosis. We draw blood work, and we do imaging studies, again, collecting data, 
to ultimately make a diagnosis. And then once we have a diagnosis, the way we're trained in medical school is the assessment or plan or treatment plan includes a pharmaceutical agent or an intervention or a surgical procedure. All of that is really, really important and should be part of the medical education experience. But what's missing in medicine is the opposite of pathogenesis or the mirror image of pathogenesis, and that's called salutogenesis, which is the study of health and well-being. So how do we maintain health and well-being? That's the other half of the human health continuum that we don't learn about in medical school, which is shocking, right? So what would that include? That would include understanding nutrition and its effect on on, uh, human health, understanding the importance of physical activity, all the aspects of lifestyle. Uh, That's what we call salutogenesis. And that is what I think should be the foundation on which we build all else. And in the world that we live in today, uh, where uh, chronic diseases are are most prevalent, I mean, if you think of, for example, uh, diabetes, this is a disease that is exploding in our country. You mentioned it earlier, right? When I was in medical school, uh, what is it, 27, 28 years ago, uh, rates of diabetes about 2% in the United States. Now we're about 10%. And the CDC ominously predicts that by 2050, 30% of Americans will be living with diabetes. We, we can't sustain that. Um, and, and we know how to prevent diabetes. In fact, we have literature that 93% of diabetes is preventable by modifying our behaviors. I mean, that that is uh, extraordinary. And that should be the primary message that we're relaying uh, to patients uh, um, every day. And yet it's not. Uh, developing yet another drug to treat diabetes is not the solution to the problem. The solution to the problem, and nobody wants to believe that it's so simple. We have this complex healthcare uh, dilemma. We spend $3.6 trillion per year in health in this country. 86% of those dollars are allotted to the management of chronic diseases that we know how to largely prevent. It's crazy. Every physician, every healthcare professional should be speaking to this ubiquitously, unanimously. We should be on mountaintops um, sharing this. We should be on the uh, cover of every newspaper. We should be talking about this on every talk show, every podcast, because it's so incredibly powerful. And it's and it's very, very simple. Get up and walk 30 minutes every day. You know, even if you're not willing to make sweeping change in your diet, just add another piece of fruit every day. Do what you can to increase that fiber content, more colorful, beautiful whole foods on your plate. Um, learn how to sleep properly. I mean, these are simple things um, and they're very, very powerful. But again, I think there's so much confusion in the general public and we always want to believe that the solution to the problem must, must be complex. And there are many um, scenarios in medicine and in science that are complex, but this is not one of them. And we're all at some point going to pass on. And um, I say this all the time. It's I say it in my book. My hope for each and every one of us is that uh, we live life to our fullest. And then at age 102 or whatever, on that last day, we spend a beautiful day with family and friends. And then we go to bed and we pass peacefully. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I don't know, that's my goal too. My dream is that that's how, you know, that's how it happens, right? I think it's, I mean, it's less stressful on everyone. It, it is less painful theoretically and, you know, all of those things. But I, I kind of wanted to circle back to um, something you had talked about where you felt like um, 
salutogenesis, you know, should be the foundation, right? Kind of for, for medicine and for the training that we get. And so we, we're kind of curious in terms of, in your opinion, to change and bring into medicine what's missing. Like what would need to happen, you know, to actually make that, that change? Yeah. From my perspective, I think the biggest um, uh, win for us would be to introduce this into the curricula of medical schools. I'm, I'm not sure if, you, if you've had an opportunity to watch Code Blue the documentary, but there is a medical school in which this has already been enacted. It's a medical school in, in Greenville, South Carolina, the University of South Carolina, Greenville, where they built a medical school with this in mind, that they would int- to integrate lifestyle medicine as the foundation. When you train physicians that have this foundation, then when they go out into the world, uh, think about it, you know, they have a panel of a thousand patients. This is what they're going to relay to their patient population. Um, imagine if you had a physician, you're coming in because you have, you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, we're going to treat your diabetes with medication. But at the same time, the, it, the visit doesn't end there. We're going to talk to you about how you can reverse this pre-diabetic or diabetic state. I mean, I've, I've lectured to medical students, second year medical students, and they and we were talking about diabetes and how diabetes is reversible. And the are you kidding? Dr. Stanzik, diabetes is reversible. And their second, third year, even fourth year medical students that aren't getting this, it is reversible. And it's largely reversible by modifying our behavior. We have an important study published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2002 that looked at pre-diabetes. And and it's a randomized uh, um, study where they looked at metformin, which is uh, a drug that we routinely use as a first-line agent in diabetes, and compared it to diet and exercise. And diet and exercise was twice as effective as preventing uh, preventing the development of diabetes. And yet, in clinical practice today, we just write for, for metformin, even though we have a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine that clearly tells us that lifestyle is more effective than, than a medication. And so why is that? Why are those messages not being conveyed effectively? It's because in medical school, when we talk about diabetes or prediabetes, we're just hearing the the medication part. And when we go on to our clinical rotations and we're, we're rounding with our attending physicians and we see a diabetic patient, the attending physician's not talking about diet and lifestyle. The attending physician's just talking about the medicine, which of course is important, but... These have to go hand in hand. We can use medication, but the idea that, it, that we should always strive to reduce dependency on medication. And, and let me just say, it's not that I'm against medicine, and it's not that I'm against conventional uh, mainstream medicine. I practice aligned with you know peer-reviewed evidence-based practice guidelines, but my goodness, if we can reverse disease and we can reduce dependency, then we need to go there. In 1964, we more than uh, 45% of Americans uh, smoked in our country. And, and when the Surgeon General produced uh, the first Surgeon General's report that clearly um, documented uh, the deleterious effects of smoking, it, it took, and you know, it, it's interesting because it took some time. We continued to smoke and it wasn't until doctors really, it wasn't until, believe it or not, 1993 that smoking was finally removed from hospital settings. And, and doctors spoke uh, unanimously to how uh, destructive uh, tobacco use was. But we've come a long way with smoking. We've gone from 40 plus percent to now 13.7 percent of Americans smoking. Still too many, but that's significant change. And I think that if physicians speak to the importance of lifestyle, again, universally, that's how we'll, we'll, we'll bring greatest sweeping change to 
to the current environment. Right. Lifestyle changes are hard. I mean, I don't know about you, especially New Year's resolution time. We all make these like, I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to eat healthier. Right. But those are not necessarily like those habits are not easy necessarily to make and do. And so I wonder, like, I think we turn to physicians because they're the experts. They're the ones guiding us along our our treatment paths or our health kind of things. And so I think if they have the message, that's going to be impactful to share with, with their patients. But I also wonder like how much of it is like the societal pressure. Like, I don't feel well, give me the pill to make me feel better. And then I'll have to do, you know, I don't have to change anything about, about my life. Absolutely. Um, that's an excellent point. Uh, people want to take the easy path for sure. Um, but here's the thing. If the physician were to, let's say you're, you are pre-diabetic and, and um, we can take two paths. We can put you on, medi- on medication, metformin, or we can implement some a lifestyle change that, yes, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard and you're going you're gonna to need some support uh, from your physician, from maybe a health coach. It's going to take effort. Uh, but if the physician, so if, if you co- go to see your physician and your physician presents these two options to you, and then you say, well, doc, what do you think? Well, you know what? This is so much easier. Let's just do the metformin, Amber, and, and, and it'll be, but if your physician says, listen, I, I get that it's going to be a challenge to implement changes, but I'm here for you and I'm going to support you. What do you need? What can you do today? You don't have to change everything overnight, but let's make one what can you do today? Can you go for a 10 minute walk? Are you willing to do that every day? And we're going to check in in a week. So you start to introduce change because it's not just the pre-diabetes that I'm worried about here, Amber. I'm also worried about your risk of breast cancer 20 years from now or Alzheimer's disease. I'm going to give you the incentive uh, to want to create change because it's not just your pre-diabetes that we're dealing here. We're dealing with your anxiety, your depression, your risk of other chronic diseases like diabetes, heart disease. I want you to live this full and 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 productive life. So I'm not just treating this pre-diabetes. I'm changing the course of your life. I want you to live an extraordinary existence. All of a sudden, doesn't it sound much more attractive to you? Do you want to go on this path with me? Right. And I'm not. I'm going to hold your hand through it. I'm here to help you. All of a sudden, it becomes feasible and possible and exciting, doesn't it? Like, I mean, ahead. it sounds convincing coming from you, right? And that that makes me think that you know physicians are definitely not trained in that way to have that bedside manner and that approach. Just thinking to you know how my mom's diabetes has been treated, and you know it's it's like yeah, metformin and glucophage, and you know like we'll just keep adding you know the arsenal that that we have the you know pharmaceutical interventions, but not as much focus on you know changing lifestyle and diet and exercise. Um, just thinking to all the um, the students that we advise at our university for health professions, and you know all of our listeners that are on that track, you know that they can you know start thinking towards that right already, and you know choose those schools that introduce you know nutrition and you know all these healthy lifestyle things into their curriculum as opposed to just focusing on pathogenesis. Yeah, I mean, and that's really important because medical schools will change when when the students that are applying demand this. And, and that's really, really important. And if you're a medical student uh, in a current medical school and your medical school is completely ignoring this, speak out, speak up, speak to the dean. This is important. I want to understand. I want to have this foundation uh, in my education. It's, it, and, and I think that I've spoken to many deans of medical schools across the country, and they say that to me. They say, if, if medical students demand it, then we will create it. 
over the eight years that I practiced lifestyle medicine, um, I probably had about 50 to 60 patients who were also doctors. And the way that that happened was at some point we had a patient in common, uh, you know, an endocrinologist and I seeing a diabetic and the diabetic would, you know, I would see their patient who had been for years poorly controlled. We implemented these behavior modifications. Their hemoglobin A1C goes from 10 to 5.7 or 5.5. Um, we're able to taper them off of all of their medications. They go back to see their endocrinologist and the endocrinologist, what did you do? This is amazing. You've lost this weight. You, Oh, I went to see Dr. Stancic. She's a lifestyle medicine doctor. And we talked about behavior modification. And so they call me oh, and, and what is this all about? And we have a conversation as peers, as professionals, but then they call me back and say, I want to see you as a patient. So then they would come to see me with their, I mean, because doctors get sick too, right? And so they would present with their issues, their hypertension, their hypercholesterolemia, their obesity, and then we would work on getting them healthy. And then when you have a doctor who now gets healthier, that to me was an incredible blessing because I know then they go out into the world and they practice this way. So I would have these cardiologists or even I had a plastic surgeon who all of a sudden was, was talking to his patients who, you know, who were coming in for a tummy tuck or what, was talking to them about lifestyle medicine and, and supporting them. I love that. And doctors make the worst patients, right? <laughs> As they say. And yet, it's yeah. True. <laughs> so one of our favorite things to discuss with all the wonderful women in STEM that we have as guests is talking about the future since we're all on growth journeys. And, and I love that you celebrated your 25 years, um, you know, since your diagnosis, because you've clearly grown a lot. So we want to hear what comes next for you. Well, um, I'm, I've recently started a new position. I'm not yet um, able to, to share the details, but it is an exciting opportunity in where I'm going to be working with a, a, a new healthcare organization that is going to build uh, on this idea of lifestyle medicine and deliver it across the country. So um, it's, a, it's a blessing, uh, uh, this opportunity that, that came to me just recently. And I'm very excited to be working with a group of brilliant, actually women, is primarily women. Um, and we're very excited about bringing lifestyle medicine uh, to the forefront and making it accessible to everyone. Uh, because that's another important factor here is we want lifestyle medicine to be available to all. Uh, and and we want, and it's, it's, as I said, the beauty of lifestyle medicine is that it's very simple. Uh, and it's just about empowering individuals. And, and um, that's what I'm working on Currently, and hopefully uh, once I'm ready to go public with it, I can come back and share it because I think it's an exciting uh, um, opportunity that I'm involved in right now. And I think a lot of good is going to come from it. Thank yeah, you. When you come to Houston, look mm -hmm. us up and we will, we will, you know, campaign for, for this kind of movement. I think it's really important and we'd love to be a part of whatever we can do to help spread this message. Thank you. I will definitely uh, look you up. And in fact, this new position that I've just accepted is located in Austin, Texas. Ah. I'll, I'll be in Texas a lot. So I'm, I'm sure we'll find an opportunity to meet up in person, hopefully post-pandemic. <laughs> yes. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there was so much there. I know. 
Well, and so for me, like one of the big things that um, I've I've connected a little bit with, you know, our previous podcast guest, right, with having Sheta on and then her, right, and linking kind of climate change, like solutions along with healthy lifestyle is like more plant-based, right, more plant-based eating, which you do. But I told my husband earlier this week after, you know, prepping for this kind of conversation that I was like, babe, I think one day a week we should eat just plant-based dinner. And he gave me this, well, I, I prefaced it by saying, I'm about to tell you something you're really not going to like. He's like, why? And I was like, because it's good for us and the environment, the double win. He he was not super convinced about it. I mean, it's it's small changes though. Like what she was saying, right? Like yeah. it's not an all or nothing approach. Um, I, I'm sure like even doing that one day a week could have an impact or like that 10 minute walk, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be, you make big, you know, sudden changes because right. psychologically we know it's that- hard. It's, it's hard. hard. People don't do well with, um, you know, anything like that, like mask mandates or whatever. Right? Like people don't listen, right? You know, I'm glad that she's going to be working in this organization and addressing, you know, making it accessible to everyone. Because I was thinking about that, right? Um, it's good that the fast food chains are introducing, you know, these plant-based burger options, et cetera, the beyond. And, but, um, you know, could it be like, you know, the rich get richer, or the fit get fitter? is what's happening. I mean, so, so yes and no. I mean, if you think about, and again, this is maybe my, my biased opinion about some of this, but if you uh, have diabetes and have to take medicine regularly, like that can't be cheaper than eating more healthier foods. Right. I think too, though, you know, they, they say, right. Those are the issues. The processed foods are cheaper than the vegetables. Right. And I think some of that is changing a little bit. Um, but I also am, am kind of excited because, um, around where we live, there's some more of these organizations popping up that are kind of the community garden types of things where they're really trying to give access to, you know, the fruits and vegetables, the healthy foods to these, you know, areas that, you know, maybe wouldn't have the best access to them or be able to afford them. So I'm optimistic a little bit because there are, like, I think those efforts are also growing because we do understand the importance and the need for this. On the next episode of WiseCast, hashtag STEMfluence with Isa Valdez, we speak with our first environmental scientist, our first Latina scientist and listeners. We have finally landed a guest from the Instagram world of influencers. STEMinists are making a big impact on building an interest in STEM through social media channels. We appreciate your support in all forms. You can financially support WiseCast and our future projects to help close the gender gap for women in STEM and education. Check out our website, thewisestwomen.com, and our social media for more information on how you can support this important mission. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Amber Miller. And I am Dr. Richa Chandler. 